0: OK, here we are. A couple of weeks ago, I, I read uh, an article in the, on the internet, you know, in the news, um, that had to do with a sports figure that I have known. He went to the college that I went to. And uh, he and his wife uh, apparently had a strenuous pregnancy. And, uh, and she mentioned um, that a certain song had really given her a lot of strength. And so I dug up the song. Turns out Nathan knows this song very well. Uh, But it it was a song that had to do with God being found uh, in the midst of grief, you know, in the midst of struggle, in the midst of suffering. And uh, I kind of went back over this the last couple of days, James, with you in mind, uh, hoping that I wouldn't say anything that was a little bit too um, uh, quick, you know, and uh, and too glancing, because... um, You know, when one of us suffers, we all suffer, and we all suffer to some degree. And so uh, I want us to think about this today in light of these uh, three instances of the word uh, afflict or afflicted uh, here in the the span of these 16 verses uh, in Psalm 119. Um, Last fall, I don't know if you guys did this, but we reflected on a stanza of Psalm 19 every day uh, through the fall. Uh, in the church as a way of connecting with the book of Deuteronomy. And that's been so helpful to me that I've uh, continued to reflect on Psalm 119 a couple of times a week. Uh, It's a great help to me. Um, But, you know, reading these passages make you want to rethink the Declaration of Independence, don't they? I think it was Thomas Jefferson that wrote that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. An unalienable right at the foundation of our American society. Um, Thankfully, wiser people have spoken into this uh, in the meantime, and while it's a good thing to want to be happy, uh, there there are ways, uh, of thinking that indicate that it might not be necessarily a good object for your life. I don't know if you've heard of the uh, psychologist Viktor Frankl. He's a remarkable man. Uh, Google him, read his biography, his brief biography. Um, He really is quite a remarkable guy. And uh, even when he had the chance uh, to come to the United States, uh, when the Nazi regime arose uh, in Europe, he chose to stay with his parents. He ended up being put uh, into the death camps, uh, and he was functionally a therapist in the death camps. Uh, He lost most, I think, all but one of his family uh, in those camps, but he survived, and he came up with a method of therapy um, that has run its course, but he had some core truths that I think are worth thinking about. And and the the core truth uh, was that he said that happiness could not be an achieved goal, that it was impossible for happiness to be a goal that you would achieve by your action. Uh, Rather, he said, happiness was the consequence of something else. Now, for him, it was existential meaning. Uh, Existentialism's come and gone, uh, so I wouldn't go so far as to advocate for that. Uh, But I think his insight that, that happiness as something that you pursue, a goal that you seek to achieve, uh, is going to mess you up. Uh, I think that's true. Uh, Immanuel Kant, you know sometime uh, before uh, Victor Franklin from a different heritage and background and theological perspective, uh, said similarly that the more we worry about being happy, uh, the further we get from satisfaction. Now that 's really worth thinking about you know on a very fundamental level and it 's something that, that radiates out and into a lot of different uh, reflections on Life. We're, we're hosting a, uh, uh, a conference on children's ministry at the Cambridge building uh, in October. If anybody's interested, you know, come and join us. It's, a, it's actually a denominationally sponsored event. Uh, but I've been asked to speak uh, it, on the Saturday morning of that event on the notion of creating a positive um, Bible-centered view of sexuality. You know, and that, that I'm not gonna do that now, uh, but what I wanna say is there's a lot of presuppositions that we come in with. A lot of presuppositions that distort uh, a modern view of human sexuality, and, and I, I think the kids uh, in their schools, particularly middle school and high school, are faced with this more rigorously uh, than many of the rest of us are. But one of those presuppositions is you have a right to be happy, and that you should pursue happiness. And only if you pursue happiness with all your energy are you ever gonna get anywhere close to it, and nothing should bar your pursuit of happiness. Uh, it's it's something worth thinking about. Uh, Is that really going to get us where we wanna go? Or is at the outset that a pursuit that is gonna be marked by frustration? Um, So we're doing Psalm 119 today. I didn't know we were gonna be so saturated in the Psalms with 103 as well. Um, For most of the the history of the church, the Psalms have been foundational, I think you know this. Um, The New Testament prefers the Psalms. Two-thirds of its Old Testament quotations come from the Psalms. Early theologians recommended that the Psalms be read first before the New Testament. That's kind of interesting because those early theologians were were the ones that were concerned about Christology and the doctrine of the Trinity, Uh, but they said the Psalms should be read first. Daily reading of the Psalms was required of all the clergy, and the Second Council at Nicaea required that all of the bishops memorize the entire Psalter. Now, uh, that rigor with the Psalms uh, dissipated in the 12th century, but that's another story for another time. You can ask Bradley about that. Um, But the Psalms are critical in that they are clearly resonant with every human emotion. We had an adult ed class this morning in Cambridge. uh, that was on the topic of mental health. Uh, And one of the things that we discussed was uh, how we reflect on human emotion and how the church reflects on it. We always haven't had a very positive reflection on human emotion, at least in the last 50 years. Um, But here in the Psalms, you have every conceivable human emotion uh, on display. Uh, The Psalms weave all the circumstances of life into worship. And they're surprising to the 21st century evangelical. Uh, in their determination to keep praying through the most difficult of life situations. Now, again, I don't know where you are on this. I would assume you're reasonably healthy in this regard. And I know that you guys as a church have been through a lot, uh, especially those of you who have been here for a long time. It's been remarkable, uh, the things that you have uh, been through. Uh, But, you know, the mood of the day, you know, in a lot of Western churches is... um, an inability, I think, to deal you know, on those uh, deep levels. You know, what I hear often is you know, a notion uh, akin to, I, I, I'm not going to, I'm not gonna to pray to a God who would have let this happen to me. And, and rather than that, the psalmists keep praying. It's very interesting, the psalmists keep praying. Uh, Charles Taylor, you've probably heard his name a lot, he's written on secularization uh, in a very wise way, I think. He says you know, that this problem that we call theodicy, the problem of how a good God permits evil, uh, is actually a pretty recent problem. It's actually something that hadn't really occurred to people except in the last 500 years. Prior to that, um, it seemed self-evident. It seemed clear, at least, especially as you read the Psalms, uh, how those two things could go together. So in the Psalms, disease, death, betrayal, oppression, as well as blessing and abundance, Fuel the psalmist's prayer and worship. So what I want to pay attention to is these three verses, um, verse 67, verse 71, and verse 79. Uh, The beginning of of 67, or 67 says this, before I was afflicted I went astray, but now I keep your word. Uh, In verse 71, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes, And then verse 75, I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous, and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. So here's the the large question. How is it uh, that David can say, it was good for me that I was afflicted? How can he say that? Now, I know the answer's in the text, but stop before you get to that answer. I I, want to get to that answer eventually, but I want to start with, how is that question? Uh, How does that question come about? Um, it was good for me that I was afflicted. How does that statement come about? We're asking the question, how can David say that? Well, I think the anchor of it, you know, really is that last part of verse 75, in faithfulness you have afflicted me, um, and that in and of itself turns the world upside down, doesn't it? You know, we, we usually soften it into something like God has allowed this to happen. You know, this is the way we talked about God's decretive will versus his permissive will. You know, so God has allowed this evil to take place. He's taken his hands off so that it can impact us negatively. This evil has come against us. But, but that's, that's not what it says here. Uh, the psalmist is more direct. I know that in your faithfulness, in faithfulness, you have afflicted me. Now, how could a loving God afflict anyone? That's the big question. It rubs against what we think we know about God. And this is where, you know, theology is really worth contemplating. You know, not just the practical matters of how we live, you know, not just the wisdom that we want to accrue as we mark our steps and make our decisions and chart out our life, but something even more profound, you know, how we think about God. Who is God? What kind of person is he? And why would we even call him a person to begin with? Who is God? And how could a loving God afflict anyone, much less one who is the object of his affection? How can that happen? Well, I'm gonna give you a couple of things that are kind of obvious, but I wanna say that, you know, for me, um, I always need to keep remembering these things. I always need to keep coming back to them. And and the first is this, that affliction does, um, in in ways that uh, everything positive in your life cannot do, Affliction teaches you how to pray. It makes you pray. Uh, you might be lazy in your prayer. Uh, you might find it difficult to pray. I find it very difficult to pray. You know, I mean, I can, I can get up early in the morning and I can crack open the Bible and I can read a good chunk of it you know, according to various reading plans. Uh, but then when I close the Bible and I need to pray, you know, then I start to sound like a first grader. You know, the normal things kind of crop up. And, uh, and, 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 and they don't resonate with the depth of what I've just read in the, in the scripture. But affliction, difficulty, will teach you how to pray. And one of the principal themes of the whole Psalter is that the people of God pray out of their distress. And that's what happens when you read the Psalms a good bit. You find there's a lot of distress there's a lot of heartache. The thing that surprises me is how often uh, the, the psalmist talks about uh, his opponents, his enemies, those who have sought his destruction, and he prays against those people um, uh, to the Lord. Now, I, I do wanna say very quickly that I am, I am very, very nervous about locating my enemies. <laughs> uh, there are a lot of people that bug me. In fact, I would probably say most people bug me. And, uh, and, and those are not my enemies, you know, those are, I can't be praying against my wife every time we have a dispute. Lord, strike her down, you know, bring the hammer. You can't do that. Uh, I think it's safe to locate your enemies in the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so if you're asking God to destroy your enemies, ask that he would destroy those influences uh, in your life. Um, but again, the bitter reality is that prayer is learned in adversity. I had a a songwriter tell me um, that her best songs were written when someone had just broken her heart. And she's got a strong career, has won Grammy Awards. She said, I just can't write a song when things are going well. They, They sound kinda dippy, they sound kinda schmaltzy, and there's no punch to them. But if somebody's really done me wrong, then I can sit down and pour out my heart and write a song that resonates in the hearts of the people who are listening to it. Now, that notion itself, that prayer is learned in adversity, crashes into contemporary worship and pop Christianity. But it has the value of truth. It has the value of resonance with the Catholic Church, small c. When I say Catholic Church, I mean around the world and through the centuries. The experience of the Church has always been that prayer is learned in adversity. One of my favorite Old Testament commentators, Bruce Walke, uh, says that one's true beliefs are best expressed in prayers. One's theology is best discovered through one's prayers. You know, as you pray, you understand who you think God is, and then you've gotta go match that with how God has revealed himself. So adversity teaches you to pray. Um, Secondly, because God does not always answer your prayers, in in the time in which you hope that he would answer your prayers, uh, affliction teaches you to trust. When your prayers are not answered quickly, you learn, well, the biblical language is endurance, character, and hope. You remember that passage? At the beginning of Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul says, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we also rejoice in our sufferings, because they produce endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint. When I first became a Christian, I ran out and bought a Bible uh, that made sense to me. And uh, it was called a Living Bible. I don't know if they make these things anymore. Can you still get them? There, they, they, somebody has bought the rights to the name, and now there's a thing called the New Living Translation, which is a lot more reputable you know, as a piece of scholarship. But the old Living Bible was the work of one guy named Ken Taylor. And uh, I don't even know if he knew Greek and Hebrew, but he produced a Bible Uh, that meant a lot to a whole lot of people. And uh, and I remember reading um, Jude, and and in in, in verse 5 of Jude in the Living Bible, it said this, uh, Remember this fact, which you know already, that the Lord saved a whole nation of people out of the land of Egypt, then killed every one of them who did not trust and obey Him. And that shook me up. I mean, I was a brand new Christian. Oh, what in the world? You know, God saved this whole nation, but then... Killed, you know, wiped out, destroyed all of those who did not trust and obey. And, uh, you know, Nathan, you're talking about old hymns, trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And, uh, and so that kind of sunk in. Well, imagine my surprise years later uh, when reading a translation of the Bible that was built on the Greek. Uh, it turns out that the word there is actually believe. That God saved an entire nation out of the land of Egypt, but then destroyed all those who did not believe. Now that that becomes a little bit confusing. I'm only saying this to make the point. That to believe and to trust and obey are very, very similar in the way that the Greek intends to communicate what it means to believe. Not so in the 21st century. You know, uh, we have shredded the word belief. You know, we have used the word belief to, you know, well, I don't know. It just hardly means anything anymore. Any any day now, we're going to be asked to believe in the Red Sox so that they will be carried through to the World Series championship. You remember, that it was it was in 2004. Was that year that first year? Just believe. Yeah, you well, know, that's just kind of nutty stuff. And you know, and and you can hear it if your ears is attuned to it in pop culture. You know, if if you just believe in certain things and everything, you know, it's kind of like wishful thinking. But that's not what the Bible means. You know, to believe is to trust. And to trust is to obey. And you see whether or not you actually believe in adversity. You you find out uh, the weaknesses of your faith. Now, all of us have got weaknesses in our faith, don't we? You know, none of us is a tower of strength when it comes to faith, but you will have those weaknesses identified in adversity. And so, you know, again, just to back up, how can David say it was good for me that I was afflicted? Well, one of the things that it did is it taught him to pray. Another one of the things that it did is it identified the weaknesses of his faith. And it's, kind of, it's, it's actually hard to imagine what went on in David's life. You know, we, we love to read these great, expositions of faith, you know, from the mouth of David, and you know, I always scratch my head and say, now was this written before or after Bathsheba? And even the strongest faith can be subjected to the most horrendous fall. But you, but you find out about your faith, you find out the quality of it, uh, you find out whether it's real in the fire of adversity. So I was reading this morning, the very end of uh, 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 13. Uh, Paul says, examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Now, he actually says it in a very pastoral way, so he's kind of confident they are. But he says, make sure you don't fail the test. Examine your hearts. This is kind of what we're doing every time we come to the Lord's Supper. This is why it's of moderately more emotional value that we spread the Lord's Supper out and only do it a few times a year. Uh, because then that kind of self-examination has a focus. We do it weekly, and I think that's a good thing to do. Uh, we do it weekly in Cambridge as well. But you lose some of the urgency of that self-examination. Uh, but, but Paul says, examine yourself. See if your faith is genuine. Well, you find out if it's genuine in the fire of adversity. That's somewhere else in the Bible. You, know, you find out whether your faith will survive the fire, just the way that precious metal is refined by fire. Uh, that fire comes in and refines faith. Third, okay, first, affliction teaches you to pray. Third, it teaches you to trust. And uh, second, it teaches you to trust. Third, affliction teaches you who God is. Now, we're back to this potent question. Um, Who is God and what is he like? I have always loved the 26th question and answer to the Heidelberg Catechism. It's hard to match the grandeur of the first question and answer of the Heidelberg Catechism. We're going to recite that during the, uh, the Lord's Supper. Uh, but, but listen to this. This is when uh, the Heidelberg Catechism is turning to an exposition of the Apostles' Creed. That's what all the good catechisms do. They do Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, and the Ten Commandments. What do you believe when you say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth? And okay, that's the beginning of the Apostles' Creed. Everybody remembers that, right? So... Heidelberg Catechism says, what do you really mean when you say that? Here's the answer. That the Eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who out of nothing created heaven and earth and all that is in them, and who still upholds and governs them by His eternal counsel and providence, is for the sake of Christ His Son, my God and my Father. I trust in Him so completely as to have no doubt that he will provide me with all things necessary for body and soul, and he will also turn to my good whatever adversity he sends me in this life of sorrow. He is able to do so as almighty God and willing also as a faithful father. Now that's a mouthful, isn't it? Other translations say whatever evil he brings into my life, he turns to my good. This is what it means when you say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty. Now, there is a poison that is running through our bloodstream. Uh, it is in our, it's in our—it's even woven into our DNA, if I can mix the metaphor. Um, one of my favorite theologians is Sinclair Ferguson, and he has labeled this the Edenic poison. And what he means by that is this is the poison that came into the human race in the Garden of Eden. You know, when the devil came and assaulted Eve, Uh, with these insinuations that God did not love her and that God's word was not to be trusted. And and that is kind of the heart of who we are as human beings. And, And we never get rid of that. Now, we do battle against it all the time, but we never get rid of that subtle suspicion that God does not love us and that his word is not to be trusted. And it's not a surprise then when at first glance our troubles look to us as though God has neglected us or has even acted against us. You know, that's where the devil kind of jumps up and says, see, see? Adversity has come upon you. Difficulty is weighed in. You're even being afflicted. God doesn't love you and his word is a lie. You know, Job's not a bad model here although I wouldn't recommend that anybody embark upon too long a study of Job. You can, you can find a, there's a really nice little brief uh, work on Job. and I, What's it called? I can't remember. I can dig it up for you. It's by a guy named Christopher Ashe. Uh, it goes off of, uh, of the comment of, a, uh, of one of the mystics, uh, one of the medieval mystics. She said, uh, God, if this is the way you treat your friends, I'm surprised that you have so few of them. I'm not surprised that you have so few of them. And I think, I think that's what the title of the book is, How God Treats His Friends. Yeah, you know, but Job, you know, initially is a man of great faith. And these bad things happen to him, and he says, you know, famously, the Lord gave, the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. But then the rest and the bulk of the book is him challenging God and saying, you know, I want a hearing, you know, I want to stand before you, I want to present my case, and, and of course, the subtext of that is I've been wrong. Uh, But, of course, by the end of the book, uh, he he trusts. So the the bulk of the book is his challenge to God, you know, believing the devil's insinuation that God didn't love him and that God's word was a lie. Um, But by the end, he covers his mouth with his hand and he says, I spoke of things I had no awareness of. And he really worships. And, and of course, everything is restored. Um, But the sure promise that we have in Hebrews is that God does not punish his people who believe, remember that, that the love of God, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit are undeterrable. They don't wax and wane. They don't don't become greater or lesser, uh, you know, given your uh, behavior. They are steadfast, they are firm, but the writer of Hebrews says God will discipline you as parents discipline their children. And so he says endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as a son or a daughter, as the case may be. Every hardship, everything that comes against you, God is using to further his salvation in you, to further uh, his work of grace, to further his redemption in you. And and here we, we finally kind of sit in the reality of the cross. And Jesus is the man of sorrows. And that's why I think Good Friday is probably the, the center of the Christian universe. I, I, you know, you can argue and say, no, no, it's Easter. And I'll I'll concede. Uh, but Good Friday is is is, is where it happens. You know, it's why the cross, you know, looms so large in the Christian imaginary. It's why we've built buildings in the shape of the cross. It's why it's uh, regrettably become a piece of jewelry. Uh, But the cross is always to be contemplated if we're to understand, make any sense of uh, adversity in our own lives. If we're to make any sense of David saying it was good for me that I was afflicted. I had uh, printed in our Good Friday bulletin last Good Friday, this prayer, it comes from that little book, The Valley of Vision. Um, you remember the word Mara in the Old Testament? Uh, it, it's in the Book of Ruth, and, uh, and Mara is the name that, that equates to bitterness. Uh, you need to know that as I read you this, this, this prayer, this poem. May the cross be to me as the tree that sweetens my bitter Maras, as the rod that blossoms with life and beauty, as the brazen serpent that calls forth the look of faith. By thy cross crucify my every sin, use it to increase my intimacy with thyself. Make it the ground of all my comfort, the liveliness of all my duties, the sum of all thy gospel promises, the comfort of all my afflictions, the vigor of my love, thankfulness, graces, the very essence of my religion. And by it, give me that rest without rest, the rest of ceaseless praise. You know, affliction ends up teaching you the beauty of God's word, the beauty of his laws, the beauty of his statutes, rules, and testimonies. And now we get to the punchline, you know, of that earlier verse. So if it teaches you faith, if it it teaches you how to pray, teaches you trust, Uh, It teaches you who God is, and it ends up teaching you uh, the beauty of his word. And, And this is what these verses are getting at. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. It was good that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. You know, one of the most beautiful pictures in the New Testament is that of the former demoniac in Luke 8. Remember, this guy is tormented beyond measure, you know, by these demons, and ends up being a legion of demons. You know, and there's all kinds of rich theology in that, and I won't, I won't unpack that now. But at the end of it, you know, when Jesus casts out the demons, they go into the pigs, the pigs go drown themselves. All of the people from the local village come rushing out, and they see this guy, and the description of him is that he is sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. Uh, that's a great picture of salvation. That's a great picture of redemption. Uh, To be sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in our right minds. You know, there are a lot of other pictures. The picture of the prodigal who returns home and uh, comes to his senses. So he's in his right mind as well. Uh, but, But being in your right mind at that point is where you say, God, your words are good. God, even your laws. You know, there's another psalm, Psalm 19 says, your your laws are of infinite benefit to me. They are sweeter than honey in the comb. They are more valuable than silver and gold. And and that's that's a hard thing. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I preached on wives submit to your husbands, and husbands love your wives. And I said, you know, we just got done saying that even though the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of our God will stand forever. Well, now I'm going to ask you, do you believe it? You know, there are pretty direct things uh, in the Bible, pretty direct things in the Word of God that we, uh, as in every generation, have the capacity to dismiss and kind of move aside. But here's this guy sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, embracing God's Word, embracing submission to God, embracing obedience to him. You know, not as something that is done begrudgingly, but something that is done gladly, willingly, uh, joyfully. So those are the four things for my, at least for now. I, I think you can go back and dig them up. Um, and, and we could add a lot more to them. Uh, but this affliction, it's good to be afflicted. Because it teaches you to pray, it teaches you to trust. It teaches you that, your, that, that God is bigger than your truncated version of him. It teaches you that God is the Lord uh, and that he's not your butler. And then it teaches you the beauty of his word. And so with that, I just want to reflect very briefly on that quote that I gave you. That quote is from Archibald Alexander. You know, the, the, the Puritans in many ways were kind of the proto-psychologists um, of the modern world. And they had a deep understanding of the human character and uh, and of the ways that we would go wrong, and uh, and in a book called, um, um, why am I blanking on the title? of that? Is it in the? It's in the bulletin, isn't it? Uh, Thoughts on religious experience. There it is. That's the title of the book. He has uh, a little place where he says nine helpful hints for growth and practical piety, and and of those nine, you know, it's normal stuff like go to church and read the Bible and pray and you know care for each other, be in fellowship with one another, and then he unleashes this whopper uh, at the end. He says, for your more rapid growth and grace, some of you will be cast into the furnace of affliction. Sickness, bereavement, bad conduct of children and relatives, loss of property or of reputation may come upon you unexpectedly and press heavily on you. In these trying circumstances, exercise patience and fortitude. So I think that's part of the endurance and the character and the hope. In these circumstances, exercise, patience, and fortitude. Secondly, he says, be more solicitous to have the suffering sanctified than removed. Now that's an interesting piece of advice, isn't it? Be more energetic in asking God to sanctify the suffering than in asking him to get rid of it. Thirdly, he says, glorify God while in the fire of adversity. That faith which is most tried is commonly most pure and precious. Fourth, he says, learn from Christ how you ought to suffer. As I mentioned, he's the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He's the one who invites us in. And he tells his disciples, you know, gives them fair warning. "Uh, If this is the way they treated me, they'll treat you the same way. Fifthly, he says, let perfect submission to the will of God be aimed at. You know, In adversity, I mean, this is the way my modern mind works, is I kind of feel like, well, if this is, there's that Paul Simon lyric, I love this lyric. He says, is this my problem, is this my fault? If that's the way it's gonna be, I wanna call the whole thing to a halt. And I'm sad to say that that undoes my sanctification quite frequently. Hey, I'm in a tough way, I've been mistreated, someone's being bad to me, so, all bets are off, I'm cutting loose. You know, when in fact, wisdom, from Archibald Alexander says, let perfect submission to the will of God be aimed at. He says, never indulge a murmuring or contented spirit. The seventh thing is repose with confidence on the promises. Commit all your cares to God. Make known your request to him by prayer and supplication. And then lastly, he says, and this is very, pretty potent. I actually just ordered a book that's, that's due out at the end of next week. Uh, it's called Remember Death, and apparently, you know, at least from the blurbs, you know, that made that prompted me to buy the thing. It's it's going to be, you know, a bit of a game changer. You know, one reviewer said it, it was the first book he's read in a long time. It just knocked him off his chair. I I imagine it's it's very similar to what Alexander says here. Let go your too eager grasp of the world. Become familiar with death and the grave. Wait patiently until your change comes, but desire not to live a day longer than may be for the glory of God. Let go your too eager grasp of the world. So that's what Alexander says. I think those things are helpful. Uh, I think it kinda gets back to this notion of is it really an inalienable right, an unalienable right that we pursue happiness, is, where's is that gonna get us? You know, What about the wisdom of the word? Um, Alexander Solzhenitsyn gave a famous speech at Harvard. Um, some people think it's continuing, its, it's validity is, is, uh, it continues. Uh, other folks have dismissed it as they did at the time, but, but he said in that speech that the secular world insists that people are born to be happy. Whereas reality clearly shows that people were born to die. And since we were born to die, it is evident that our life's task is a spiritual one. Let's pray.